Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. This morning, as we continue on in our study in these sermons on the book of Galatians, we come to what is really one of uh, the high watermarks uh, of Paul's letters. This is in Galatians 5, uh, 16 through 26, the place where Paul writes, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I came, uh, as, I, as I was studying this passage this week, uh, came to a fresh appreciation of just how central this passage is. Uh, it has been for the church for some time, for 2,000 years. Uh, Christians have preached about it, we've reflected on it, we've written on it, we've prayed through it. In an effort to get that picture of what is it that God is making of my life, what is he doing uh, in me and through me? I came uh, to the preacher's realization that this really ought to be an entire sermon series uh, in the fruit of the Spirit, and I commit that I will preach you a sermon series on the fruit of the Spirit at some point, uh, which is a better idea than trying to cram a series worth of sermons uh, into the next hour and a half. So we'll try to keep uh, this sermon at its normal length. Um, Thank you. But it's the Jaguars' bye week this week, so if you're going to go long, uh, no, but we're, uh, so we are going to turn our attention to this, uh, this wonderful passage. Um, if you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Our reading today is Galatians 5, 16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it is given to us in love. You can be seated. I have uh, a few favorite trees in my neighborhood. 
there's the oak tree in my front yard uh, that has a swing attached to it that a lot of the neighbors will stop by and swing on. There's the tree at the front of the yard, another oak tree, uh, where some neighbors had a tire swing when their kids were younger that we would hit every time we walked by it. Uh, There's the magnolia tree in my backyard in which I taught my children how to climb trees, uh, where I remember when they were smaller, initially having to lift them up to get them to the first one, and then they would climb and panic uh, before they get down. Uh, This is a tree that now they jump from with ease, uh, much to their mother's horror. But my favorite tree in our neighborhood uh, is a grapefruit tree uh, that sits uh, towards the front of our neighborhood. Uh, the owner of this grapefruit tree uh, are, is a uh, kind of a mother to the entire neighborhood. She's known as Mama Tweet uh, to us and to our children. Her husband, Dr. Tweet, uh, rarely gets outside due to ailing health. But this uh, grapefruit tree, we're nearly at the time of year uh, where its fruit uh, will become ripe. In this grapefruit tree, I swear to you, best tasting, uh, right there in the middle of Jacksonville, Florida, produces the best-tasting grapefruit that I think I've ever tasted in my life. And Mama Tweet, uh, as she's gotten older, is no longer able to harvest all the grapefruit, but she leaves out a grapefruit picker, and we all know, everyone in the neighborhood, that as you come by, you are free to pick some fruit from this grapefruit tree and to take it home and to enjoy it, free of charge, uh, to bring this delicious gift uh, into our homes. And this, essentially, uh, is a picture of Jesus' design for his mission in the world. That in the midst of the cities of this world, Jesus has planted a tree. Uh, And the goal of that tree is that it would produce delicious fruit. Fruit uh, that's marked, we're told, by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and the rest. This fruit, normal, ordinary men and women like you and me, cultivated by the Spirit, grown in the midst of the communities of this world, and then given away for free for the enjoyment and life-giving savor of this world. This fruit is meant to be a kind of a foretaste, a kind of an appetizer of a world which we're told is coming into being. We're told that this world, marked as it is by sin and anger and selfishness and lust and greed, that it is coming to a close, that Jesus has once and for all defeated it on his cross, and that a new world of the Spirit, marked by this kind of fruit, is coming into being. And in the meantime, you and me, ordinary people, serve in our world as a kind of a foretaste of that kingdom. And I think uh, here this morning that we are touching on what may be one of the single hardest elements of the Christian faith for us to believe. There's days where I think that it's easier to believe that God was born of a virgin, uh, that a man was raised from the dead on the third day, that God created all things that exist out of nothing. Sometimes I think that that is easier to believe than the outrageous claim that I can change, that you can change, that we can be made new, that I could ever be the kind of person that my neighbors would say, oh, Dave, You mean that man who's marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and goodness and self-control. That reality seems to us so very hard to believe. 
If you lived much with me, you would know how hard to believe that is. It's hard to believe when we look at our own lives, we know how persistent and hard to change that we are. We know that uh, progress in this life, the cultivation of virtue in this life, seems to be one step forward and maybe not two steps back, maybe seven, eight, nine, ten steps back, and then another step forward. We know it when we look at our own lives. It's hard to believe when we look at the church. Christians uh, seem to be, and in fact are, just as afflicted by the selfishness and greed and lust and abuse and power and hypocrisy of the world as anyone else, right? It stands out all the more because we have this notion that things should be different. It's hard to believe uh, that God is making something out of the church uh, that truly is different and beautiful and delicious and life-giving. This is what uh, Francis Schaeffer, Francis Schaeffer was in the middle of the 20th century an apologist. He started uh, a series of communities all over the world called the Labrie Communities, where people came to study, uh, where seekers came to learn and investigate Christianity in a community of safety and love. But he came to a point, um, sort of a spiritual version of a midlife crisis, a place where he contemplated uh, giving the whole thing up in the midst of a spiritual despair. And what brought him there is what he calls the problem of reality. Here's what he wrote. He says, Gradually, however, a problem came to me, the problem of reality. This had two parts. First, it seemed to me that among many of those who held to orthodox Christian positions, one saw little reality in the things that the Bible so clearly says should be the result of Christianity. Second, it gradually grew on me that my own reality was less than it had been in the early days after I had become a Christian. I realized that in honesty, I had to go back and rethink my whole position. The problem of reality, looking at the, spirit, the relative lack of this kind of fruit in the church and indeed in his own life, led him to a place where he goes, well, is it even true? Right? Is it even worth believing if it contradicts reality? This, uh, this problem does give me some sympathy for the Galatian Christians, right? You remember the problem in Galatia that Paul is writing about, that these people uh, had come in after Paul and had begun to teach a message that was contrary to his message. In addition to the grace of God freely given in Jesus, they came along saying, yes, but in addition to that, you also need to keep the law. The, the regulations of the Jewish Old Testament, you needed to be circumcised and eat kosher and follow its ethical principles. And this gained traction within the Galatian church. And I do, after this some time we've spent in Galatians, have some sympathy for these people. It's always easy to beat up on legalists. Right? It's always easy to look at people adding legalism into the church and self-righteousness into the church. Uh, they make an easy scapegoat. But if you think about it, they knew one very important thing, that the Christian life was supposed to be different, right? That Christians were supposed to be different somehow from the rest of the world. They knew that the Christian life was supposed to be a kind of a countercultural, different sort of life. This uh, brings, to, brings up the fact that maybe we expect too little in just how different our Christian lives might be 
from our life before Christ and the life of our neighbors. Their problem wasn't that they expected change. Their problem was that their vision of change didn't go deep enough. Right, Their vision of what it took, the way that Christians, the way that this Christian life was meant to be deeper and different was, well, get circumcised, and then you'll be different. Or eat different kinds of food, and then you'll be different. Keep different sorts of customs, and then the, the, the Greek and pagan neighbors will look at you and say, oh, you're different. But Paul's critique isn't that they expected change, that they expected difference, that they expected fruit. Their problem is that they were content to work on the outside of the human's life. They were content to change the circumstances and the outward appearance of men and women and children and think that that was enough of a difference. And I have sympathy for that. I think that this is the, this is the reason that legalism is always a temptation to Christians. Right? If we just become, uh, if we just start to look different, if we start to, uh, start to stand out more, if we get our moral lives in order, then the rest of the world will see and know that there's something real there. But Paul says that that doesn't go nearly deep enough, that the change that God is after isn't a change that starts on the outside and then maybe one day changes the inside, but that it's a change that works from the inside out, changing the whole of a person. Look at verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. What Paul is saying to these people is that the gospel changes us at the level of your desires. At the level of your heart, at the level of your, your kind of fundamental direction in life, not simply on the outside, at the level of choice or ideas. Friends, you are made by God to be a desiring being, right? The most important thing about any and every one of us is what you desire most. Your life is far more shaped by your desires than it is by your ideas, than it is um, by your choices, that all of those things flow out of a heart that desires. If you want to really get to know somebody, uh, ask them, what do you want? It's far more, far more core to who you are than what do you think, right? Our life is the trajectory of what we want. What are you chasing after? What, what things do you think represent the good life? That if you have them, your life will be full and whole, and if you miss them, it will be empty. Your life is shaped by your desires. Faith has far more to do with love, trust, and desire than it does with ideas. Now, there's a content to the faith, right? There are, there are statements to be believed. But faith isn't simply saying, oh, yeah, that's, I think that's true, and I think that's true, and I think that's true. Faith works at the level of a conversion of your wants. It happens when you see that you want Jesus and his life and his grace and his mercy more than you want yourself and your desires and your own life. Our lives are lived at the level of our wants. And Paul is here saying that there are two offers to you in your life. 
that there are these things that he calls the desires of the flesh and what he calls here the desires of the spirit. And Paul is uh, setting up a parallel, desires of the flesh and desires of the spirit. Now, we have to be careful what he's not doing. What he's not doing is creating a dualistic world where the flesh, the bodily, life lived in our bodies is bad, and the spiritual, the world of the beliefs and the heart and those kind of things is good, right? He's not saying that, right? That was, the, that was a belief in his day that was held by the Gnostics, so it was a different religion. And right, the very fact of what we're going to celebrate in a few months, that Jesus was born into a body with flesh and with blood, with the everyday, ordinary experience of humanity, shows us that Christianity is not a religion. It's not a faith that says, body bad, spirit good. But what Paul is talking about, notice he doesn't lift up the spiritual with a lowercase s, as though the spiritual part of your life is good. No, it's spirit with an uppercase s, the third person of the Trinity, right? The desires of the spirit, the desires of God himself. And so Paul is operating with this world where there is a world of the flesh, which he uses to describe the entire nature of this world after Eden. This world marked not by love of God and worship of God, but by love of self and worship of self. The world bent in on itself, each one chasing after his or her own desires, his own way. That's the way of the flesh. And the way of the Spirit, the desires of the Spirit, being this new life, this new kingdom that has been born through the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul is saying that each of these have desires, that the flesh and the Spirit uh, do represent two different ways of life that are competing for the desires of your heart. Perhaps an image will help. There is an image that uh, much probably to our culture's worst uh, has become common to us. It's one that we have seen on television for probably going on something like 30 seasons of television now. The scene goes something like this. Uh, there's a woman, can be a man, but for now it's going to be a woman, uh, standing on a constructed television set outside likely in front of some type of water. It's either an ocean or a waterfall or a lake or something like that. She's surrounded by flowers, maybe some candles. There's a little bit of a misty effect. And over her anxious video of her waiting there on this platform, a narration plays. And she says some version of this, you know, when this whole thing started, I thought it was crazy to have 50 men competing. But along this journey, the unthinkable happened. And now I'm in the hard place, the hard place, where I'm in love with two men. And I've got to pick one. And then uh, they cut away from her, and then two men coming, likely on helicopter or limousine, uh, begin making their way to this romantic body of water. And she stands there, and they both come, and they start cutting back and forth now at this point between her, her life with one and her life with another. And they, this, these, these men start expressing how somehow on this journey, they've come to fall in love. And now they cannot imagine their life without this other television personality. 
And so they, they're, they're both doing this. She expresses her affection for them. And then in the most painful moment ever captured on national television, these men get down on one knee. And then she stops one of them. She says to one of them, I love you, but I love someone else just a little bit more. Right? And then you're led to believe that these other two people uh, are going to go and live a life you know, happily ever after together. Um, shockingly, the success rate on these marriages is not great. Um, and usually if you're watching the show, what keeps those of you who are watching the show watching the show is that usually you know that life with one of these men is a bad idea. Right? Usually you're, you're, you're sitting there at home going, no, honey, no, no, snow ski consultant is not a real job. You don't want to be with him. Right? He's, he's playing you. He's terrible to the other guys. You know, you, you want to stop her from making a bad decision. Well, that picture of one person trying to sort out two proposals from two different people, competing for the same heart, is, uh, as awful as it might be, an image uh, of where we live our lives. That we have two proposals, Paul tells us, from two very different ways of life. You have a wedding proposal from the flesh, a way of life that promises come, pursue your own life on your own terms, your own satisfaction, your own needs. And the voice of Jesus which is, the prophets tell us, the proposal of a marriage. To come and to be his beloved, to find your life in him, to find your fullness not in your own desires, but in the fullness of his desire for you. That we're dealing always with two competing desires. And these, these two desires, these two choices, do lead to two radically different lives. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. I'm sorry, verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul, uh, ever the brilliant pastor, does something amazing with this list. If you notice, some of the list are things that you read it and you go, ooh, that's in the Bible? Right? Paul's warning them against orgies and drunkenness and sorcery. Right? Some of them are the kinds of sins that when these legalistic Galatian Christians read it, they would have said, yeah, Paul, those are the sins that we need to watch out for idolatry, sorcery, those people who, who mix and match with other religions, those are bad, right? Drunkenness and orgies and sensuality, right? Those are terrible. But notice what Paul works in right in the middle of a list like this. Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. He takes these external, obvious sins that everyone in this highly religious community would have immediately identified as marks of a pagan, non-believing life. And then he worked right in the midst of it what we might call churchy sins. 
right? Churchy sins like divisions, right? Anybody think that there's divisiveness in churches, right? Churches, uh, in, in some ways, the, the history of the reason we have so many denominations in this world are because we couldn't figure out how to get along. We couldn't figure out how to get along theologically. We couldn't figure out how to get along relationally, right? Divisions, envy, right? That, that hidden sin that nobody really knows when you just sit back and think about all that you want that other people have that you don't have. Right, so Paul melds these two lists together as though to say the flesh can take a couple of different paths in your life, and one's not good and one's bad. One might be more obvious, whereas one's more hidden, but both of these paths, both of these ways of the flesh are fundamentally coming out of the same source. They're both basically ways of seeking uh, your own good, and bending in on yourself. C.S. Lewis put it this way. In Mere Christianity, he writes, The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all the sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong and of looking down on them, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power and of hatred. He says, that is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes to church regularly may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. Love that little concluding detail. <laughs> right? And this, this plays out in the life of Jesus. Right? It's the religious leaders. It's the Pharisees. It's the ones that everybody else looks at as though they are spiritual superheroes, pillars of their community that Jesus says are like whitewashed tombs. They look good on the outside, but on the inside, it's rotting and dead. And it is the prostitutes and the tax collectors and the outcasts that he says and shows are very, very near to the kingdom because it is so much easier for them to look and to look at Jesus and to look at his grace and his mercy and to say yes, to say, I desire that, I want that, I need that. And so Paul paints this image of the works of the flesh that might look very, very good or it might look very, very bad. But Paul tells us it is a life that leads only to death. It leads only to darkness. It's a life bent in and consumed ultimately with yourself. He then goes on to say there is another way of life. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. First, I love that he, it's, remember, you notice he, he contrasts the works of the flesh, not with the works of the Spirit, but with the fruit of the Spirit. Right, that the, the works of the flesh are your, the production of your own body. It's the production of your own heart, the production and the work of your own flesh. Whereas fruit is something that is grown, right? It's not something that you work for or earn or produce. It's not something that you manage or cultivate on your own. It's something that has to be produced by, by a process that's happening beyond you. And so the fruit that the Spirit brings is this incredible life 
marked not by greed and self and adultery and, and all, that, all that grips us in this life, but marked first and foremost by love. Love and then all of its outworkings and joy and peace and patience and the rest. And you read it and you go, this is a beautiful life. All of our lives would be sweeter and better if they were more marked by these descriptors, more marked by these virtues. This is the fruit that I want for my own life. I want to be more patient and loving and kind. It's the life that I want for my children more than I want for them to do well in school or go and get a good job. I want to see this kind of life birthed in them. It's the life that as a pastor I want to see in our church. A life cultivating this kind of fruit. It's the life that God wants for his people. It's the delicious fruit that Jesus wants to grow in us and then to give away for free to the entire world. Imagine how much different our lives would be. Imagine how much different our places of business and our neighborhoods would be if each of our lives, everywhere that God planted us, came to be marked by this kind of life, this kind of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. I was convicted uh, just in reading this list about how far short my life falls of this kind of fruit. Now, the truth is that there's only ever been one human life that this list describes perfectly, right? This list is a portrait of Jesus. Jesus is the only human being that's ever walked this earth who's lived with perfect love and perfect joy and perfect patience and perfect kindness. But if I'm honest, I have a problem that I've taken my eye off of the ball in some ways, when it comes to the pursuit of this kind of fruit, that this is, at any given moment, what matters most in my life is the Spirit's working to produce this kind of fruit in my life. I think that contemporary Christianity is in the shape that we're in because I think to a large extent, we've focused on the gifts of the Spirit at the expense of the fruit of the Spirit, right? We love the spiritual gifts, right? If you find a gifted enough preacher, we build megachurches. Find skilled leaders, people gifted with that incredible gift. We oftentimes overlook gaps in their character, right? We see that playing out, sadly, in the news, it seems like every week. Right, that we're so enamored with growth, we're enamored with success, we're enamored with the great things that we do for God, that we take our eyes off of what God is most concerned with, which is not what we do, but who we're becoming. Right, notice that every one of these things on this list is not something that you could go out and do tomorrow if you tried. Right, these aren't uh, action verbs. These aren't focused on what we do for God. These are focused on, these are virtue words. These are words focused on what God is making in us, what he's forming in us, the character that he's shaping in us. That's what he is most concerned about in our lives. The gifts of the Spirit are given uh, seemingly at the mysterious whim of our Father. Right? We don't understand why we get the gifts that we get and other people might get different gifts. We might wish that we had gifts that we don't possess. 
We might look at the gifts of another and say, why did, why did God in his grace give that person gifts that, that he didn't give me? But the fruit of the Spirit isn't a list where we're free to pick and choose which ones we think we have or which ones we think we want, right? You don't have permission to say, you know what, I just don't have the spiritual gift of patience, so I'm going to lose my mind at my spouse when I get angry. Or I don't have the gift of gentleness, so I'm going to go off on social media at people I disagree with because, you know what, I'm just, God hasn't made that fruit in me yet. No, this is a picture, this is a portrait of what real fullness in Christ looks like when He, by His Spirit, molds us into His image. And so Paul lays out two ways of life that could not be more different. Two desires, two choices. And now, friends, the good news is that we are not left left to ourselves to choose between two equal competing powers. Right? The... Uh, John Sinema, who some of you, he was the pastor at Christ Church Mandarin for a number of years, the, the church that planted us. Um, and he used to say that some of us live with this idea that the flesh and the spirit are like if you threw two cats into a pillowcase and just let them fight it out. It's a graphic image. Um, he said, it's not, your heart isn't two cats in a pillowcase duking it out, right? Is Dave going to be more flesh or more spirit? And they should go at it. No, it's not two equal forces opposing one another. This is something that can only be given to us by faith in Christ, by trust in Him. But notice what Paul says is true of us in verse 24. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Here's what Paul's saying. He's saying if you're in Christ, then you were crucified with Christ. If you're in Christ by faith, then what's true of Jesus is true of you. Your flesh, your old self, bent bent in on itself, devoted to self, living by sin, that self has been nailed to the cross and dead forever. And a new self by the Spirit has been resurrected with Jesus. You've died with Him and you've been born to new life with Him. And if you live by the Spirit, which surely you do, then keep in step with the Spirit, Paul says. Right, So for Paul, this choice is no choice at all. It's recognizing that you are already dead and made alive. The flesh crucified, the new person, the new man, the new woman made alive by his spirit. Now the question is, on a given day, in a given month, in a given year, right, it will we'll either keep in step with the spirit or not. We'll either heed his voice and his leading or we won't. But what's not up for grabs is whether or not you will come to bear the fruit of the Spirit, right? He will make his fruit in your life. He will. Peter tells us what that when we see Jesus at his appearing, when we see him, we will be like him, right? He will make us loving and joyful and patient. We may make more progress in this life towards that, or we may make less. But Jesus, by His Spirit, will make His fruit in us. He will make us into His image. So if the fruit of the Spirit is not a list of things to do, if it's not a list of commands or works, as the Galatians might have wished, what do we do in response to this? What are the commands here? 
And notice what Paul says. He tells us to walk by the Spirit. He tells us to live by the Spirit. He tells us to keep in step with the Spirit. That last word, keep in step with the Spirit, is the Greek word that would be used to describe the rhythmic marching of an army next to each other. We've seen uh, what it looks like when a, when a battalion of people steps in perfect rhythm with each other, according to a beat. If you've, those of you who've spent time in the military, you know that is a cultivated ability, right? The ability to march in time. And Paul says, keep in step with the Spirit, walk in time with the Spirit, live according to the rhythms of the Spirit. Walk with the Spirit. I feel like the Spirit, for many of us, uh, Calvin called the Spirit the hidden God. And in some ways, I think the Spirit is cloaked in mystery for us. We, can, we have a metaphor to attach to God the Father. We know as, as imperfect as our fathers might be that God the Father is like a father. The Son, we know, we've seen. We read the Gospels. We can know something of what He's like. But the Spirit, He, we, we have less of an idea about. He seems a mystery to us uh, at times. And so it's important for us to listen to Paul to learn who the Spirit is and what he does. Right? The Spirit isn't some kind of strange force uh, that comes or goes in our lives. Right? We're told that the Spirit is God's gift to us. The Spirit is God himself living his life in and through us. Right? We often equate uh, in contemporary culture the move of the Spirit with some type of spectacular emotional high. Right, I felt the Spirit. But notice what Paul says here. The fruit of the Spirit isn't emotional. Right, the only thing here that could even be considered emotive is joy. But right in the, in the New Testament, joy is also a choice. It's, a, it's, it's gratitude. The Spirit is producing a changed life. The Spirit is producing moral fruit. And we are called to live by the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to keep in step with the Spirit. How do you do that? I think that, that these words of Paul are essential synonyms with what Jesus says in the Gospel of John when he invites us to abide with him. Right? The Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ. To walk with the Spirit and to walk with Jesus is the same. To keep in step with the Spirit and to abide with Christ is the same. It's Jesus by his Spirit making his life with us, dwelling with us, abiding with us. So how do we do it? And this is going to sound ridiculously pedestrian. Go to church. <laughs> Go to church on Sunday. Worship with his people. Pray to him. Make time both in your corporate life, in church to pray, and then also in your personal life to pray. Read his word. He's promised that he speaks to us through his word. It's the very word of God himself. Surround yourself with God's people. Don't live your life in isolation. It might be as simple as going to the growth group that you've been putting off going to for the past few months. Right? Commit yourself to living life with his people. It'll be a means of his grace and his spirit to you. Serve the poor. Right? Jesus says that you find him when you serve the least of these. You serve him. You find Jesus among the poor. Give generously to those who have need. Cultivate this life in Christ through his spirit. 
And Jesus promises us that you don't have to guess whether or not he'll meet you there. You don't have to guess whether Jesus will be found when you pray to him, when you read his word, when you live with his people, when you adopt his mission, when you share your faith, when you minister to the poor, when you comfort the grieving, when you put your arm around your brothers and your sisters and you walk with them in this life. You keep in step with the Spirit every step of the way. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.